Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the economy, guns, China, Chile, and Ukraine. We'll start with the economy. Uh, And the uh, economic story this week that I want to paint, there's a lot to get to, but really uh, there's potential possible slight signs of a slowdown in the economy. That's how I would kind of sum up the economic reports and the things that I want to talk about with the economy this week. So I'll start with the two reports that we got. So the first one is the jobs report that came out on Friday. Uh, The United States added 390,000 jobs last month. This was the slowest pace since last April. So over a year of uh, more jobs added than this month. Uh, This is, however, is still well above average uh, kind of pre-pandemic levels. Um, so the 12 months leading up to February saw much higher or slower growth, job growth than we saw this month. But this is the slowest month that we have had this in the last 12 months. Wages also grew 5.2%. But again, this is down from 5.5% wage growth that we saw in April. And uh, there are also reports that labor market pressure is easing Uh, with uh, kind of an increase in the labor participation rate as well. Uh, This comes on the back of uh, what is called the Fed's Beige Book. It's kind of essentially the Fed's, uh, uh, just a report that they uh, release every so often. And in there, and, and in it, they kind of describe the state of the United States economy. And in their Beige Book that they released this week, um, they said that the U.S. economy grew at a slight to moderate, modest pace this spring. Um, they said that companies struggled with higher prices and labor shortages. Some consumer pushback uh, was experienced to higher prices. Uh, also, some firms said labor market tightening was easing. So again, reiterating what would the, those jobs report told us as well. And then uh, some uh, firms cited hiring freezes. So now companies are starting to freeze because freeze hiring largely because of those uh, because of inflation. Uh, though uh, worker shortages still did continue in other in a lot of industries. And so uh, we kind of take those two reports and we put those together and we start to see that, okay, maybe the economy is starting to slow down. Again, it isn't a recession. It isn't a bad economy. It isn't a slowing it isn't a slow economy. It is still a fast growing economy and it's still a booming economy, so to speak, outside of inflation. But we are starting to see some, maybe some cracks in that. Uh, this may be the beginning of something, uh, but we're going to have to continue to keep an eye out on these reports as they come, an eye out on the economy uh, to get more. We, we need more data to make a kind of a better determin- determination than uh, what we have so far. With that said, I do think there is reason to believe a slowdown in the economy is coming, whether it's starting right now is you know up for debate. But uh, if we look at kind of what's happening with the Fed right now, so we've talked about how Fed is raising interest rates, um, but also what started this week is that the Fed portfolio began to run off uh, some of their portfolios. So what that means is, so all the way back in 2020, the Fed announced that it would buy $500 billion in treasury securities and $200 billion in mortgage-backed securities. They were essentially kind of creating money, giving that money to the banks, and then buy in return, buying the the, the treasury uh, securities that the banks owned and mortgage-backed securities that the bank owned. So they're adding liquidity into the market. However, they stopped buying in March of this year. They stopped this buying. So 
they, that doesn't mean that they were all of a sudden uh, shrinking their balance sheet because what they were doing is as these holdings were expiring, as they were, um, you know, getting uh, rolling off of their books, they would use the money, the proceeds that they had from those um, securities, and they would reinvest into other securities. So they weren't buying more, so to speak. They weren't creating more liquidity into the system. They were just holding steady. Well, now, instead of reinvesting that money and buying uh, these bonds and these uh, mortgage-backed securities, now they're allowing them to mature without reinvesting. And essentially what they do then is they take the proceeds that they got from those uh, securities and they are dest- quote unquote destroying or removing that money from circulation. So they're not really you know destroying physical money because it's all done electronically now where they're creating electronic entries and all of that. But they are destroying or removing uh, the, that digital those digital dollars from circulation. Uh, so theoretically, this will make the supply of bonds go up, which will drop the price of bonds. And then there's an inverse relationship between the price of bonds and the interest rates. So when the supply of bonds goes up, the price drops. That means that interest rates, long-term interest rates in this case, you know, 10-year, 30-year long, uh, interest rates will then go up. And that will, again, de-incentivize people from lending. It will make lending more expensive. And there's one area of the economy that I really think we are beginning to see the results of this, and that is the lumber market. So if you remember last spring, lumber prices were all over the news. Everyone was talking about lumber prices, which is you know an odd thing because uh, when do, do people talk about lumber prices? And but everyone was talking about it because the lumber prices were like you know double pre-pandemic highs. I mean they were just astronomically high. Well, now we're starting to see lumber prices come way down. So lumber futures, that is, uh, if you're buying in large quantities, you want to buy at a set price uh, for you know th- your future purchases. And so lum- lumber futures are down 52% from their high in early March. At the same time, on the spot wood, so that's you know wood that you buy right now, has also plunged as well. The reason I think this is an, uh, interesting is because lumber... You know, looking back now, those increases in lumber prices, a lot of people were talking about as supply chain issues, and there's always and there is that supply chain element to all of this, but they were really the leading indicator of the supply chain uh, problems, but also of inflation in general, and, and so um, they kind of were the precursor to the inflation that we have seen over the last year, and so I think it's interesting that now they're falling. That could again, just all theoretical at this point, could be a precursor that inflation is going to tame again, not go down because lumber prices are still elevated. Compared Compared to where they were pre-pandemic levels, um, but um, it could again could uh, be a precursor to a drop in inflation as we go. Um, and the reason why that this is really uh, there's a lot of reasons, and there's a couple of reasons I want to talk about. But you know, one of the main reasons why this could be happening is because of raising rates. So uh, we've talked again, just what we talked about with the bond uh, bonds being. Um, uh, the, the Fed not buying bonds anymore and and letting those bonds roll off of their balance sheet and uh, them raising interest rates, as we talked about, uh, in terms of the overnight lending. What we're starting to see is that as rates go up, this really has an effect on the housing market. So the housing market, uh, because everyone gets mortgages to buy a house, largely speaking, 
uh, that they they operate uh, with those interest rates. Um, they interact with those interest rates. And so the higher uh, interest rates go, the more directly it affects the housing market because less people can afford homes. So as rates increase, fewer people can buy homes, which theoretically which will lead to fewer newer homes. So what we see is that the average 30-year fixed mortgage last week was 5.1%. That is up from 3.1% at the beginning of the year. We also see a slowdown in new uh, homes being built. So sales of newly built homes fell 16.6% in April from March, the biggest drop in nine years. Single-family home completions, starts, and building permits also dropped in the month of April. So this drop in lumber prices could be the result of this slowing housing market. Um, and this slowing housing market, the housing market has recently been in the news because of how crazy the prices have gone up there. But we're starting, again, to get early numbers that that could slow down. However, the drop in lumber price could also be the result of companies no longer um, hoarding like they did last year. So they saw that the prices were going up and that there were supply chain issues. So they bought more than they needed to make sure that they had it. And now they're doing less of that. And it could also be, or it could also be consumers shifting from, you know, you're at home all day in your house. You want to do projects that require wood. So you're going to buy more, spend more money on uh, lumber for those at-home projects to now you're going to spend that money on services or vacations, things that you can do out. So there's all sorts of reasons for why this could be happening. Um, but nonetheless, what we're seeing is a slowdown in the lumber market, slowdown in the housing market. And this, again, could, again, all theoretical, we need more data could be a precur the precursor to a slowdown in the economy. Moving on to um, gun conversations. So uh, Uvalde, Texas, the shooting, the shooting at school shooting that took place um, last week that I talked about, uh, as details have come out and continue to emerge from that, it makes it pretty clear that the uh, police really screwed up in how they handled this. We don't necessarily know, you know who's to blame, so to speak, um, but the main kind of way that they screwed up is they did not confront the shooter, but treated it more like a hostage situation. So, um, you know, in a hostage situation, what you want to do is you want to, you know, uh, make secure the perimeter, make sure no one can get in, and then you want to wait for, you know, SWAT and armored, armored um, forces, things like that. Um, and, and you want to not necessarily negotiate, but but just hold off from anything escalating the situation until you have it under control. So they started to treat this shooter like a hostage situation. So they did this in Columbine, at Columbine in the 90s, where they actually secured the border and treated it like a um, hostage situation. And almost, and the, the main lesson that we have learned from school shootings out of Columbine is this is the last thing you want to do. That In fact, the, what you want to do is you want to address the shooter because most of the sh they're, they're going to continue shooting. They, it's not a hostage situation. Once they start, they're not going to stop until they're confronted. And the police did not, for an hour, did not confront the shooter for over an hour. They're in the hallway. They were there, but they did not confront the shooter. Instead, they treated it like a hostage situation. This is in spite of having completed a training that made clear what the procedure in a school shooter situation was. At the same time, there was also a shooting in Tulsa at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Wednesday. Uh, four people were killed in this shooting. Uh, and this, like I mentioned last week, and I want to talk more about uh, this week, is this has opened up and reinvigorated the conversation around gun laws in the United States and gun control. 
Biden, in a speech on Thursday evening, called for legislation to address gun violence. Um, He threw support behind two policies, two kind of three policies. One is reinstating a ban on assault-style weapons. And then if you couldn't get that done, then he threw support behind raising the age to purchase assault-style weapons to 21. He also threw support behind banning high-capacity magazines. Uh, So, Uh, At the same time, you do have legislation going through the House and the Senate. They are both working on separate pieces of legislation. Those look very different. The Senate is much more compromising uh, and theoretically bipartisan than the House is right now. But one thing I do want to mention in terms of gun laws, because I don't want to get into the specifics. I don't have time to get into the specifics about each of these policies. But what I do want to mention, you've seen in the news, I'm sure, is red flag laws. So red flag laws are essentially the idea that uh, someone can report someone else that they believe could be a threat to themselves or to others. So they have a gun. If you you know someone in your family has a gun, owns a gun, and you think that they could you know use that gun either against themselves or against others, then uh, you can go to a uh, under these red flag laws. You can go to a court and go to the officials who would then go through the court, and uh, the court a court could rule. Uh, that that gun from that person could be confiscated. Now, what's important to know about these laws is that they are that the devil is in the details in all of these laws. So it has to be well written because again, we have to remember that uh, owning a gun is a constitutional right. Now, the Second Amendment makes it clear, and so the devil is in the details of these red flag laws. For example, what kind of process is gone through? You know, is due process respected, or can uh, these do these gu- uh, laws allow for guns to be taken at anybody reporting anyone? Which brings me to another kind of important detail: who can report who? Can anyone just report anyone that they see owning a gun, or does it have to be it's some relation? And do you have to prove that you know them well enough to be able to know that they could be a threat to themselves or to other? What kind of evidence has to be presented? You know, what evidence is required to take away these guns? How long are the guns taken away once they are taken? What happens to the person once the gun is taken? Or do they get uh, mental help? Do they get treatment? Do they get, you know, what happens? And then what is, uh, de- what is the, ter- the determining factor in allowing that person to o- own a gun again? These are important details that we're going to actually have to look at legislation to determine whether that is good legislation and whether these are good laws or not. Um, so gun laws or uh, red flag laws in general, uh, I, I, I can support the idea. But again, I, I'm going to have to see the details. I'm going to have to see the legislation to see exactly does it does it do a good job of protecting due process and protecting the individual's right to own a gun while at the same time allowing people that when they see someone who they who is a real threat allows them to um, you know go to the authorities and the authorities to do something about that and not let it escalate as we see so much so happen so often. Moving on to international news and in kind of a worldwide celebration, we can all celebrate that the Shanghai lockdowns are over. They have been lifted after basically two months of lockdown. The citizens of Shanghai uh, can now roam. Uh, the, the most severe of the COVID restrictions are lifted. Again, this is the world's largest port city. Uh, so hopefully the opening up of this city will uh, ease some supply chain issues and at the same time ease some inflation concerns. 
Meanwhile, in Ukraine, uh, the situation is uh, we, we're kind of getting more and more updates. So the Russian military, they have the, Russia has essentially decided to refocus their military in the east of Ukraine. I mentioned this on a couple podcasts ago, where instead of their the, initially when they invaded, they went from the north, the south, and the east, and they tried to essentially take over the entire country all at once, very quickly. That was their goal, and. It was soon obvious that that was not going to be successful. They did not capture the uh, capital city of Kiev, for example, and so they have been struggling uh, in that endeavor. So what they did is they withdrew from those areas. That's why you've now seen like politicians being able to allow uh, being in Kiev uh, now, and the, the embassy in the United States embassy has returned to Kiev. And so the reason why they're able to do that is because the Russian military has withdrawn from that area. But what that means is they have now refocused in the east of Ukraine. This is where Russian support is the strongest. Remember, they, the Donbass region is the separatist region that has been basically under Russian control since 2014. And in the east, in this battle of the east, uh, Russia has now taken over multiple cities and possible regional hubs as well. In fact, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, came out and said that Russia controls roughly 20% of Ukrainian territory now. Now, there, we cannot confirm those numbers, obviously. Uh, this is the fog of war. Uh, and Zelensky has a vested interest in making the situation look worse than it is to the international community so he can get uh, more supplies. That's not a critique of him. Uh, he's president, so... Um, and he's, you know, fighting for the survival of his country. So uh, it is important to keep that in mind. But just we can't confirm that number. But, but if that number is true, that's a huge chunk of the territory, 20 percent. And Russia controls almost all of the Donbass region, that separatist region in the east. Um, there's also some reports that Ukraine is facing morale issues. So Z Zelensky said that Ukraine is losing 50 to 100 soldiers per day. Again, same uh, thing, fog of war. We don't know if those numbers are true, but that would be an incredibly high number if it is. And I mentioned that the reason why we're starting starting to see success from Russia in the East is because the fighting in the East better suits Russia as it requires a ton of artillery, which Russia has. It requires, um, they, they can basically just destroy city after city. And in fact, they are literally wiping Ukrainian cities in the East off of the map. The supply lines are also shorter for Russia in the east. So when they invaded from the north, their supply lines got super elongated and they got stretched to the point where they were basically unhelpful. And that's why you saw tanks, uh, you know, being uh, running out of gas and being abandoned because they didn't have the supplies that they needed. Well, that's not really going to happen in the east because they're able to have better. The supply lines are just shorter. Russia also has control over the Black Sea, which has allowed them to blockade Ukraine. And this is hugely important because this has placed strain on the world's food supply since so much wheat comes from Ukraine. In fact, a lot of African countries get most of their wheat from Ukraine. And so now they're going to they're limiting access. They have limited access to that wheat. And Russia is kind of been pretty stark and pretty uh, open about the fact that they're going to basically start using this uh, blockade and the uh, the food as a weapon. So they're going to pressure other countries to support them or lose access to food. So they're not going they're going to continue the blockade if countries don't start supporting them. So they're using food as a weapon of war. This is you know obviously a war crime. There's also a lot of debate right now over what exactly to what kind of weapons to send to Ukraine should the United States be sending. 
So there's a debate over what is called Multiple Launch Rocket System, MLRS. Uh, so essentially, Ukraine needs long-range artillery to disrupt Russia reinforcements and resupply behind the lines. So they need to be able to shoot rockets to the back of the lines because that's where all of this supply and reinforcements are coming from. However, in order to do that, you need obviously rockets. And Biden, President Biden, is worried that these could be used to strike Russia territory. So they could, if the, if the United States gives rockets to Ukraine, they could use those rockets and shoot it into Russian territory, which would uh, be quote unquote escalation. So this MLRS, um, this multiple launch rocket system, can hit targets 180 miles away. Well, on Tuesday, the U.S. announced that they will send not MLRS, but what is called High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or um, uh, HIMARS, I think is how you would uh, say the acronym. And uh, this, uh, they decided to give with assurances that they will only be used in Ukraine territory, not in Russia territory. And what these are, are they are shorter rockets um, that can that when they are sent can only go up to about 43 miles or so. So they are um, not going to be able to theoretically land in Russian territory, though um, those assurances wouldn't have been necessary if they couldn't end up in Russian territory. And this kind of comes down to the main question is, will Putin be more patient than Ukraine's Western allies? Because eventually, will the West get tired of supplying Ukraine with weapons? Will the United States get tired of that? And will Putin, and if that happens, Ukraine is screwed. Ukraine needs, it has to have supplies from the West, from the United States. And there's real potential for, uh, you know, that support to wane as this war continues to drag on, because now we're essentially at a war of attrition in the East. So, uh, with that said, uh, Ukraine has had some victories in the last few days that have been, uh, you know, relatively substantial. So it's not over for the Ukrainians yet, um, but it is a completely different war than it was uh, two months ago, three months ago, when it started with the kind of massive operations that Russia, uh, you know, and rocket launches into cities like Kiev um, that uh, Russia used to start the war. And then I want to talk about this new constitution that is on the verge of overhauling Chile's uh, political and economic system. So uh, a final version uh, of this new constitution. So they started writing a new constitution that is Chile, the South American country. They started to write a new constitution uh, after some protest in 2019. And for the last two years, they've kind of been writing this constitution. And uh, the final version will be presented to the new president in July. And this new president is very, very progressive very, very far left and will almost certainly, uh, will, is openly in support of the new constitution. And then the constitution will be voted on in a referendum in September. So that would be um, everybody in the, in all registered voters would get to vote on that and then a majority would rule yay or nay on whether to pass the new constitution. The current constitution uh, it was um, uh, done under in 1980 under a dictator of Chile. So that is kind of the main argument for uh, a re to, for renewing the constitution, for passing a new constitution, is because th that one is seen as illegitimate because it was done by a dictator. Um, but this new constitution is really like the progressives' dream, and I mean that you know kind of seriously. So the in the constitution, it would grant indigenous groups autonomy over ancestral lands and allow them to create their own justice systems. 
Mining companies also would basically be given a new legal status of more uncertainty. They would also require the same number of men and women in every public agency. Abortion would be legal in Chile. Nature is granted the right to be protected, whatever that means. Uh, now, this um, constitution uh, is... Uh, it, it's not certain if it will pass or not. Again, the president is promoting it, but it still has to pass a majority vote in this referendum. Polls have said that the uh, poll on May 22nd, 46% of voters would reject it, 37% would approve it, and 17% were undecided. So it, 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 in, according to that poll, again, we, we can't always trust polling. And so, you know, but according to that poll, it may be unpopular, but this would be a huge overhaul, like I said. Uh, in fact, we're already starting to see some economic consequences of this. So the U.S. miner Freeport McMorone um, Incorporated, they have put um, investments that they had in Chile on hold over uncertainty. This is a really big deal because mining is 11% of Chile's GDP. So if mining companies start to withdraw, and that is largely because they have basically been granted a ton of rights in Chile. So foreign uh, mining companies have been granted rights to come and mine, and they've been protected, and it's been a really good environment for miners. And uh, that could be go by the wayside. This uh, constitution also grants rights to health care and education, which would boost spending, which would have serious economic ramifications. The investment rating of Chile would likely be downgraded, resulting in higher borrowing costs. And in the, on the legal side, a new 17-member council, nine of whom would not be judges, would appoint and discipline judges. So it would kind of politicize the judicial system in Chile. This would be, a, like I said, a massive overhaul of the political, economic, and legal system in Chile. And the reason why this is important is, like I said, this is like the progressive dream. All the progressive wants are basically in Chile's new constitution. So it's worth looking at. It's worth watching and seeing, is this going to be successful? Now, because I'm a conservative and I think conservative ideas are the what leads to the greatest prosperity of the most people, I do not think this is going to be successful. I think if this passes, this is going to be a disaster. But I could be wrong, and progressives could be right. And so I think this is worth watching. If you're a progressive, this is absolutely worth watching. This You should be you know, celebrating this. Maybe not all elements of it, but you should be celebrating this. And conservatives should be watching to see, are we right or are we wrong? And should we possibly implement some of these policies here in the United States? And now it is time for the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, the Burnett Breakdown, that you can subscribe to on Substack. And this week I talked about ending primaries. Now, this has been a hobby horse of mine for a little while now, and I've seen a lot more conversation about getting rid of primaries. But this was on my mind because of the Georgia primaries that, that, that took place last week. And I think we should absolutely get rid of primaries because well, primaries, as I talk about in the newsletter— um, first of all, I talk about democracy in that newsletter because there's always this idea that we need more democracy, more democracy, more democracy, and any limitations placed on democracy make you seem like a bigot or a, a, an authoritarian. And you know, in that, start with the way I do in that newsletter because my point in that is that everyone limits democracy. We don't allow everyone to vote whenever, however, in whatever way they want. Uh, we all believe in some sort of limitations on voting. And so... Um, that is, uh, so my argument in the newsletter is essentially that pure democracy isn't always a good thing. And my argument in terms of primaries is that we have too much democracy in our primary system. So before primaries were uh, a thing, uh, they were, um, the parties actually had a, a, a party convention 
where they delegates were sent and those delegates voted on and decided the candidate. They would then present that candidate to the country and say, this is our guy. So the Republican Party would you know, meet, uh, their delegates would meet in a convention. They would have, they would nominate, those delegates would nominate a candidate and then say, here is the Republican candidate. And the average everyday Republican voter would not get a say. They would either vote yay or nay on the Republican candidate or on the Democratic candidate. They would vote for one or the other or, you know, write in third party, etc. And there's were, was some benefits to the system. So, yes, it's, it is exclusive in the sense that we don't necessarily have a say, but it uh, it forced delegates to make deals. So some of it was, a, a lot of it was corrupt, and that was a lot of why it went by the wayside, because a lot of corrupt corruption happened. But with that said, there were some benefits in that they were forced to make deals. They were forced to uh, have a wide range, get support from a wide range of delegates, from the most moderate to the most radical in their party, both the Democratic and Republican side. They were, uh, the candidate, the delegates were, uh, incentivized to vote for someone who could actually win a general election because they, um, the, the, a lot of the deals were contingent on them winning. And then the parties were very powerful, which meant that if you said something that was out of line with the party, they could kick you out and that would have severe consequences. Now, however, the parties are super weak because we essentially allow the every average, average everyday Joe to vote on the candidate. And so what we have is we have, like in 2016, a huge field of candidates that split the vote. They, um, the vote is split within them, is divided amongst you know 12 or 15 candidates, which means that the one who's able to motivate the base the most, to really rile up the base, which almost always occurs through anger, okay? because there's no better way to get people out to vote and support you than anger, than making them angry, particularly at uh, an, an enemy or someone else, the, the, either the other side, the other political party, or the tr- quote-unquote traitors in your own. So the person who can essentially anger and make the most people angry can get a plurality, not a majority, a plurality. So Donald Trump did not win a majority of votes in uh, 2016. He won a plurality, 45%. He didn't get above that 50% threshold. So this very small percent of the most motivated, most angry people are the ones that decide the candidate. And so that's why in 2016, when you get the end result of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and everyone says, is this the best we can do? Yes, in a primary system, that is the best we can do. It also, like I mentioned in the piece, disincentivizes Congress from doing anything. If you're a congressman and you're in a a deeply red or blue state, then you can't compromise because if you compromise, someone can run further left or further right of you and say, you're a traitor, you compromised, I will never do that. And so we just have this homeostasis that nothing happens, everything stays the same, and the system is basically pushed everything to the president, to the executive, to the judicial branch, and our constitutional order is completely and out of whack. So we should, I think, absolutely get rid of primaries. And and there's other things we can replace it with, but number one is something's got to be done with the primaries. I would argue we get rid of them and give more power to the parties, uh, but you know things like ranked choice voting and, and things like that are also have also been discussed that we should talk about, but something should be done. And with that, that is the podcast this week. Please like, subscribe, share, and do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide, and I hope that you will join again next week.